let's just say you're an investor in beautiful Los Angeles, California, and you do quite well income wise because maybe you are W-2 and earner and you also have real estate portfolio and you do well. Every dollar of deduction that you get, you're still only saving 53 cents. And that's one of the highest tax brackets in America. So most people, when you think about proper wealth accumulation, spending a dollar to save 53 cents doesn't make a lot of sense. Makes 53 cents. So that would be on the deduction side, but there are ways to have leverage in your deductions. So one of the things I love to talk to people about is, well, how can you spend a dollar and get maybe four or five dollars in deductions? Is that possible? Is that legal? Absolutely it is. Now, of course, you also want to make sure you're not missing deductions. There are certain things that are in the tax code that have been around for decades that if you're not taking advantage of them, shame on you. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today we have on Mark Myers. Mark is the founder and CEO of Peak Profit Solution, where Mark helps individuals reduce or eliminate tax burdens without replacing your CPA or financial advisor. His company, Peak Profit Solutions, and its affiliates partners has helped thousands of individuals increase their profits and permanently reduce their annual tax bill to help them better grow their business and accelerate their wealth. Mark, welcome to the show. Matt, thanks so much. Looking forward to uh, some ice cream. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What is your favorite ice cream? Mint chocolate chip all the way. So tell me why. I'm a chocolate fan, but the mint just has that crisp, clean taste to it. And I grew up loving the Girl Scout cookies, the mint chocolate chip Girl Scout cookies. And now you turn it into ice cream and you can't get any better. I love it. I love it. Well, our listeners probably know that's the answer I give the most mint chocolate chip, because when I was a kid, my father used to tell me always order mint chocolate chip because no one else likes that. So you can keep it all to yourself. No one will ask you for a taste. (laughs) That's amazing. Good advice. I love that advice. Yeah. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So the scoop is when it comes to keeping more of what you work really hard to earn, that's the scoop. That is really what I like to help people with is keeping more of their hard earned profit. And when you think about it, nobody likes to pay retail for anything, particularly in real estate, right? You make your money on the purchase, right? You have to find the deal. You're not going to pay the rack rate. The same applies to anything, but particularly taxes. And there's 75,000 pages of tax code and there's plenty of coupons that you can clip if you know how to navigate those pages. So that's really the scoop today is to really make sure people know that they're not overpaying because most people are paying retail and they really could be paying wholesale and taxes legally. Yeah. So I want to dig in here. I've heard you say on previous podcasts that there's two different tax systems, one for the informed and one for the uninformed. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what the unwritten rules are for the informed taxpayer? Absolutely. Well, that statement was made by Judge Learned Hand, and he was a very well-known Second Circuit appellate judge in the tax system. And it really has to do with understanding that code and really taking the time to apply it in the right situation. He also said it's not any one individual's obligation or constitutional obligation, so to speak, to pay one penny more than they owe based off of the code and regulation that is available for us to follow. So I think, I mean, it's a great question to ask. And I'd just like to kind of reemphasize that, again, there's a lot of opportunity for people to pay less if they were to arrange their affairs accordingly ahead of time. And that's the key. Usually is not a looking back in the rearview mirror activity, is a looking forward activity and it can be very fruitful when done correctly. Yeah. So 
Yeah, as I've kind of grown my investment portfolio, that's one of the things I've really started to learn more than anything is your CPA is paid to file your taxes. A tax strategist or advisor is to help you better prepare so that when you file, you pay the least amount legally possible. So I'm assuming you're going to be on the tax advisor strategy portion of this conversation more than anything. Is that right? A hundred percent. I'm going to be forward looking, but there are opportunities, interestingly enough, using the tax code to your advantage to actually go and maybe even recapture dollars paid in the past. But the interesting thing, Matt, is I don't replace CPAs, as you mentioned before. I'm not going to give the individual investment advice, particularly real estate investors just want more money to reinvest in real estate, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Maybe not looking for the next stock deal. Most of my work is in tandem with wealth advisors or in tandem with tax professionals because I don't do either of those activities and those individuals don't do what I do. And it's really a nice synergy. If there's additional information that people I work with want to know, I can provide it. If there's not a wealth manager in the middle or the tax professional, they're looking for additional help for tax preparation and maybe accounting. Yes, I've got dozens of relationships but I'm never looking to pry anyone away from their current team. I'm just looking to be an efficient add integration into their team. Gotcha. Well, when I think about real estate investing, really a lot of the benefits we think about come in three forms, deductions, depreciation, and deferrals. So would you mind walking us through deductions? Like what can we, if we're a real estate investor, deduct and how do we maximize that? And maybe just walk us through the other three as well. Sure. So deductions are fantastic, but one thing that's really important about deductions are you're spending a dollar. And let's just say you're an investor in beautiful Los Angeles, California, and you do quite well income-wise because maybe you are W-2 and earner and you also have real estate portfolio and you do well. Every dollar of deduction that you get, you're still only saving 53 cents. And that's in the one of the highest tax brackets in America. So most people, when you think about proper wealth accumulation, spending a dollar to save 53 cents doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> makes 53 cents. So that would be on the deduction side, but there are ways to have leverage in your deductions. So one of the things I love to talk to people about is, well, how can you spend a dollar and get maybe four or $5 in deductions? Is that possible? Is that legal? Absolutely it is. Now, of course, you also want to make sure you're not missing deductions. There are certain things that are in the tax code that have been around for decades that if you're not taking advantage of them, shame on you. For example, I'll throw a bone out here, and this is a uh, not secret sauce, but there's a lot of groups that actually know how to implement this. But the tax code, the IRS, it states that if you have a primary residence or a secondary residence or even an RV or a boat that essentially has a kitchen and a bathroom and a covered shelter, if you don't use that as an income piece of property, it's a, literally a personal property. Well, you have the right to earn income on that property for up to a certain amount of days per year. I'm not going to say the number, but a certain amount of days per year. And you can leverage that. So if you're not utilizing your primary residence or your secondary residence, or if you have an RV or a boat with these types of facilities, if you're not utilizing that for specific meetings that pertain to your business, you're missing out deductions that really don't cost you anything, mm -hmm. right? Because it's not like you have to pay any additional dollars to get this deduction. It's just sitting right there in front of you, but you're not using that structure for the purpose of your business. And you could be, and I'm not talking about a home office deduction, right? <laughs> Yeah, I forgot what that was called, but I think, I know you won't say the day, but maybe you could shake your head yes or no. I think it's up to 14 days you can use for yeah. business purposes. That's exactly right. And you know, the fun part of that is a lot of tax professionals that know about it, not everybody does, and not everybody understands how to truly implement it with the most leverage and the most efficiency, but it, the Augusta rule, right? So people call it the Augusta rule because it basically was born 60s, 70s in Augusta 
when so many people converge on that green jacket event, when there's a lot of people that lived in that area that realize that they could rent their home to others or corporations for a pretty penny and just take a little hiatus for a week or so. And they lobbied to Congress to say, hey, we're not able to take deductions on all of our home expenses, but give us a throw us a bone here. So they came up with this opportunity to essentially, if you're renting your primary residence or secondary residence, et cetera, and it's not an income producing property, the way it reads is that income is not taxable. Now, here's the other efficiency that most people don't realize, because a lot of people don't want to rent their primary resident, their vacation home to somebody they don't know or a corporation. But if you are a corporation, right, if you have an entity structuring that you are doing business in and you're earning income from it, well, then you have the opportunity to rent your property to your personal corporation. <laughs> yeah, you just reminded me of like Robert Kiyosaki talked about that in I think Rich Dad Poor Dad or one of his series of books where he talked about renting it out to his corporation to host his corporate meetings. And you do need to have a corporate meeting, right? But all of us sit down with our spouses, our business partners at some point during the year and talk about strategy, talk about where we're going. If you do that in the right way, you can ultimately get a write-off on your taxes and to your point, get $4 for every dollar invested. That's exactly right. It's literally, I know you like football talked about it. So it's like using the playbook to your advantage. I mean, you can throw the ball backwards. You can throw the ball past the line of scrimmage as long as it's backwards, right? So it's just in that same principle, right? Wait a minute, you, you can't do that. You can't rent your own private, your house. No, you can. You're past the line of scrimmage, right? But the mm -hmm. rule says you can throw the ball backwards, right? So the yeah. same rule applies. This is utilizing that code legally in the way that it applies. And you have to follow the rules, right? Be egregious about it. They have to fall in a certain window of limitations, and you have to document well, and you're fine. That's the key, doing it all the right way. So you're above board and there's no gray. It's all black and white, just like it's listed in the pages of the tax code. This is why I like talking to strategists and people like yourself versus my former CPA who said, send me the books on April 1st. And on April 15th, they told me how much I owed. And there was no conversation in between the years is that when you sit down with professionals like yourself that work with many different high accredited net worth individuals, you start seeing different strategies and start implementing different strategies. And you could see, hey, Matt, actually, you fall into this bucket. Have you ever thought about doing this sorts of things? So I'm going to flip it and ask a question here. One of the major benefits of being in real estate, you have to qualify for being a real estate professional status meaning you have to basically work full-time in real estate. And if you have a W-2 job that you're working 40 hours a week, you can't get around these requirements. Off the top of my head, I think it's something like 720 hours a year. Whereas if you're already working 2,000 hours somewhere else, they're going to be like, well, when do you sleep, right? So talk to me like I'm a high W-2 earner and an accredited investor that wants to reduce my tax liabilities beyond real estate or even in real estate, where are some different pockets that I could look within my personal economy to reduce my tax liability? Sure. The first way that I generally help individuals that you're pointing out, high income earners, and they really don't have control over the way they receive their dollars because they are employed. Even if they are an executive with a company or a CEO, or maybe they have a $100,000 salary with Amazon, but they have stock warrants that are like a few million dollars per year. <laughs> They have a problem, right? Because those are assigned income and they have to pay the taxes on them, at least according to the corporate structure. Again, getting their affairs in order, there is a way for them to reduce their tax. So in that situation, the first thing I look at is the ability to take advantage of charitable giving. And again, most people understand this concept. You have a house of worship or a group of philanthropic desire and you give money to that group. Well, you love the fact that you can give them a dollar and they get to keep the whole dollar and maybe you're reducing your taxes by 37 or 45 or 53 cents, depending on the state you live in and your tax bracket. 
But again, that's spending a dollar to save 40 or 50 cents. But what if you could actually do something great? You could give an asset to a charitable organization and get leverage in that deduction. Well, the question is, well, how do you do that? Because I'd like to spend a dollar and get four or five dollars in deductions. That's perfect. That's leverage. Well, you have to have the opportunity to buy something at a discount or buy something and allow it to appreciate and then give it away. So one of the groups that I work with, and most of my work is with, I have over a dozen different relationships with very specific groups that do one or two things really well, and that's all they do. So really, when I'm looking and consulting with someone, I'm looking at their situation and saying, there's three or four things that could be done. And if you aggregate them together, this is your net result with regard to your tax benefits or tax savings. So in this situation, 30% is your limit on an annual basis of your adjusted gross income. So let's just do easy math. If someone has a million dollars of adjusted gross income, they could give no more than $300,000 of a tangible asset to a charitable organization. The question is, how do they acquire an asset that's worth $300,000 for $75,000 or less? Mm -hmm. Right? Because if you want that leverage, one to four leverage, $300,000 would be a $75,000 out-of-pocket expense. Well, we have relationships that we've culminated over a number of years where we're working with individuals or groups that have access to an abundant amount of resources, might be minerals, usually it is. And they're looking to get those minerals out of the ground and they have a distribution path that they use, but of course they can't pull too much out because then they're sitting on inventory. Well, what if you could pull more out? This is our conversation to them because they're looking to capitalize their business. Maybe they're looking to commercialize and be more efficient in their business but they could pull more mineral out of the ground. We say, well, what if we had a different distribution path that you didn't know about? It's called high income earning taxpayers. Would you be willing to sell a specific amount or buy a huge bulk amount at a discount? And then what we do is we hold it for a year and then we go to the taxpayer and say, we will let you buy interest into our company because when you do that, you can legally tack onto the holding period of the asset that was purchased more than one year ago in this entity. And they, we can sell it in smaller lots and we can give it to them at a significant discount to fair market value. And the, at the, so let's say this year, for example, if someone is sitting at a high AGI and they're like, I'd love to take 30% off the top and get literally a 50 to 90% ROI immediately because of the leverage, well, they can reach out and we can talk about their purchase. And if once the fair market value is assessed for this year, because we do it every year with a third-party qualified company, and we're, these are minerals that don't have a lot of volatility. It's not like, oh, it's going to go down in value. So once that valuation is done in December, if they purchased a dollar's worth of material out of pocket and it's worth, say, four and change, well, do you want us to deliver it to you? Because sometimes they do have a use for it or they have a distribution path and they can profit from it. Or do you want it to us to give it to this charity that's already has a purpose for it and is already willing to accept the gift? Meaning that once you give it over, you're going to get a letter of thank you and say, we received this many units of this material which is worth this amount based on the fair market value appraisal that was done within 10 days ago. Voila, you've just basically turned a dollar deduction to a dollar's cost into a $4 deduction in a 30 to 60 day time period. And if you're in a 50% tax bracket, well, $4 deduction gives you $2 of cash in your pocket, $2 of tax savings. If you only paid a dollar for it, that's a pretty good deal. <laughs> yeah. Holy smokes. There's a market for everything because my wheels are spinning here. So basically, I think what I'm capturing is let's call it lithium in this example. Some miner out there doesn't want to take too much out of the ground because they can only distribute so much and they'd be sitting on it. So they'll sell it in bulk to this company and I can go buy it for a dollar and then give it to charity for five dollars. And then basically show that, hey, I gave five dollars to this charity. So take off my AGI five dollars, essentially. A hundred percent. And the only wow. limitation is the fact that the code says that you cannot take more 
then your limit on that type of charitable gift, because it's tangible in nature, not cash, is 30% of your AGI. So let's just say you overshoot it because you weren't exactly sure where you'd land. That's okay. You can carry that forward for up to five years. So whatever you couldn't use, you could carry it into next year. Now, there's another thing that we do for W-2s, which is really up the alley of real estate investors because they understand buying an asset that produces cash flow. I don't know if you want to go down that path, but that's another conversation that we could have on what solution is really powerful for high income earning W-2 when it comes to reducing tax and not having to be a real estate professional and spend 750 hours somewhere else and have half your income coming from that source, et cetera. Yeah, let's do that because I learn best by examples because it gives me imagination to think outside of the box. So what is this example that you're referring to? So I'll use an analogy. And I think that real estate professionals like yourself and then many others, myself included, enjoy purchasing cash flow producing assets. So I always say, well, what if there was a shortage in duplexes, triplexes, and certain types of multifamily properties? And the government said, we really need the private sector to help us on this. So you go buy duplexes, tri quads, and triplexes. And if it fits, if it qualifies, we're going to give you tax benefits for that. So the net outcome would be the federal government is essentially paying for the purchase of that duplex, triplex, whatever it is. And now you just get to benefit from the cash flow. Well, that would be a no-brainer because real estate, you know, why yes, I'd love for the federal government to purchase my cash flow producing asset. So that is actually available, not in the form of duplexes, triplexes, and whatever size rental. It's available in the form that our federal government wants the private sector to increase the grid particularly renewable energy and solar, right? Tesla, Sunrun, all these big companies, and even the large banks, Wells Fargo, Chase, they've been purchasing billions of dollars of solar for the last two decades. But this is something that now we can do because with the new bill that just came out, it's going to get even sweeter for the next 10 years. There's a 40% tax credit, and it could be 50 or 60%, depending on where that solar project's going. And in a lot of states, allow for third-party ownership. So let's just kind of walk through this because you talked about depreciation before. So what if you were a high-income earning executive and then you and your spouse could essentially create a solar business together or on your own? Your spouse could do it on their own or you could do it yourself. And the only requirement for you to take depreciation on that solar asset that was purchased was 100 hours of active participation in a calendar year. And that could be done fairly turnkey with a group that helps you kind of manage the process. Well, that's a lot more reasonable than 750 in a real mm -hmm. estate world, right? So now you can literally purchase solar assets in a solar company that you create. As long as you're spending 100 hours or more per year of active participation, and you can take the depreciation and put it against your income, your W-2 income. You can also take that tax credit and it's a dollar for dollar credit against your W-2 income as well. And the way we structure that acquisition is how much we try to make sure that Every dollar that is being spent to acquire a solar asset is a full dollar that they are not paying tax. So it's parity. It's not like a deduction, right? So between the depreciation and the tax credit, combining that too, and maybe putting a little bit of juice on the top, maybe they take a little bit of financing on the deal. They don't have to do that. But that means every dollar out of pocket is a dollar that doesn't go to the federal or state tax coffers. And now they're sitting there with an asset that was fully paid for by the IRS in the very first year. So you got your return of capital in year one, and it's got a power purchase agreement attached to it, which is 25 years of secure payments for solar energy, possibly five or 10 or 15 more years on top of that of cash flow. So now you've got all the cash flow coming in from the asset that was just purchased by the federal government is yours. We're going to chat offline about that because 
when I heard you talk through that example, I'm thinking tax credit and depreciation. It's the best of both worlds. It does cost me a hundred hours, which is kind of difficult sometimes with family, personal commitments, work commitments, all that sort of things. But when you're talking about dollar for dollar over the next 25 years, that's absolutely huge. I want to highlight though, and, and kind of hear your response on this. This is my thought on the tax code is one, people need to understand the tax code is not written to raise revenue. It is written to incentivize private entities to go out there and find solutions for big problems that the government doesn't have the resources or the desire to go do. There are three main problems that every government is trying to solve. How do I feed my population? So agricultural. How do I have energy for the population in private companies? So energy. And then three is how do I house them, which is housing and real estate. So just want to give your take on just kind of my synopsis of the tax code there. Am I aligned or do you think I'm missing part of it? What's your thoughts? A hundred percent. I love the way you look at it. I mean, really, it is a leverage piece for the private sector to get done what the government can't for the most part. When it's working together in a, in a synergistic way, you really have a, a lot of benefit. And I think that this renewable energy component, energy from the sun is free. It doesn't have to travel that far, right? So you think about coal and natural gas. These are all good sources of energy that we've used for many, many years, but you have to source it. You have to transport it. There's a lot of costs in this. Now, if you can have the solar grid on every roof or every parking lot and you just have an inverter and you know it travels 100 yards to get to the circuit, it's really phenomenal. So I think that the next 10 years, because of what was just put in place, for anyone that wants to start acquiring solar assets. And remember, this 100-hour rule is only for years that you're acquiring new assets. So let's just say you acquire assets for the next five or six or seven years. Well, for those five or six or seven years, you do need to put 100 hours of active participation in that business to take the depreciation against your global income. But after that, if you don't need the depreciation to go against income, then you just enjoy your cash flow, right? So the only reason the 100 hours of active participation is there is to meet one of the seven requirements that the IRS has that says you can take this depreciation against income other than the income that's being generated from this project. Does that make gotcha. sense? Gotcha. Yeah. One of the things that I don't want to breeze over to is the fact that you talk about eliminating long-term capital gains on the sale of an appreciated asset. So most of our listeners are probably familiar with a 1031 exchange in real estate, but there's also different ways that you can structure selling an asset so that you get paid over time or help reduce your tax liability and things like that. Can you talk us through some ways that you help people if they own a business and sell it for a higher valuation, own a property and sell it for a higher valuation, own crypto and sell it for a higher valuation, whatever it is, on how they can help mitigate their long-term capital gains tax on that? Absolutely. So there's two ways to go about this, Matt. And I always say the best way is the forward-looking way. You're solving the problem before it happens because mm -hmm. the obviously you have less opportunity when you're doing it after the fact. I can't tell you how many times I talk to someone and they say, I just, I've got this property. I've got a $3 million gain on it. I tried to go with a 1031 and it didn't work. And of course the deal closed. I'm like, well, there are things that you can do to mitigate the taxes, but the deal already closed, right? The best solution is, hey, I'm going to be selling this property and my income piece after cost base, et cetera, mortgage over basis, everything. I'm still going to be looking at a long-term capital gains tax on 300000 a million, 20000000 million. It just depends on the sale. So now we say, well, great. I'm glad we're talking now before you have a binding contract because a binding contract shows that Matt, for example, well, if there's a contract that says Matt's going to get paid for the sale of this asset, then you are on the hook for the taxes. So what we do is say, 
we need to make sure that we shift or assign the ownership to another entity that you fully control, which basically shifts the assignment of income away from you, Matt, or you, Bill, or you, Susan. So now there's no taxable event when that sale occurs, but you still have that money in this entity that you can control. And depending on your needs and what you're looking to do, you may be able to take that and go right back into another real estate property, but you can wait five months or six months or eight months to find the property you need because you're not looking at your 45 day and 180 day regulations for the 1031. Because we know when you buy, when you sell high, you're probably going to have to buy high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just the way the market runs. So for people that are looking at 1031 or they've gone through that process where 1031s have failed, which a lot of them do, there is another way. It just happens to be that you need to pre-plan and you need to create a structure that you can assign the ownership to prior to the sale, prior to the contract. And that will legally shift the assignment of income away from you. And then that structure dictates how the taxes are paid. Some of them defer tax and you can continue to defer that tax ongoing for generations. Some of them actually eliminate tax, Matt. So interestingly enough, there's ways to take the sale of a business, the sale of a highly appreciated stock and literally eliminate the long-term capital gains tax based off of how you structure the sale and where that money ends up after the sale proceeds occurs etc. So it's really an interesting world. I never thought I'd get so excited talking about taxes, but you've got my mind (laughs) spinning over here because in my circle in technology, there's a lot of folks that are high income earners that just get hammered on taxes because it's not how much money you make, it's how you make it that determines how you get taxed. And you're talking about different ways that you can structure your income or offset your W-2, as well as with the RSUs or stock grants that you get and warrants and things like that at early stage startups those turn out to be real money. And when they exercise, you owe big taxes on it. There's a couple of people in my circle that have been audited from their 2020 financials now that we have new IRS agents out there and are looking at those grants that you were given and making sure that you apply the right taxes on it. So I would encourage everybody out there that if you have RSUs or warrants in a company or your high income earner, set up a conversation with Mark. I know you've got a free consultation on your site to just talk through this. like Maybe there are areas that you can optimize your tax bill and maybe there aren't. But I think, Mark, you're bringing forward several ideas that I haven't heard or thought about in terms of how people can reduce their tax liabilities. I love it, Matt. Thank you so much. I agree. And I would say there is enough time this year to mitigate tax, particularly in some of the leverage opportunities we're talking about. But the good news about solar is that with this new bill, there is a three-year look back. So you can essentially, if you acquire enough solar that you have tax credit that you can't apply to this year. Not only can you carry it forward up to 22 years, but you can carry it back up to three years. So if someone's been paying a lot of federal income tax over the last three years, we can really dig in and say, how can we get up to 75% of it back for the last three years, particularly solar? And of course, if they're just looking for, I call that the bird in the hand and two in the bush. And a lot of times my high income earning W-2 clients, they get both. The bird in the hand is they purchase an asset and they give it away for the leveraged So if they purchase it for a dollar and they give it away for the value of four and they save a dollar 50 or two, that's a bird in the hand, right? Because immediately they spend money, but they get more back. Two in the bush is saying every additional dollar that I could shift into purchasing solar assets in a solar company, well, I'd mitigate my tax, right? So a dollar that would have gone to the tax man is now a dollar in my solar business, but now I'm getting two or three dollars back of cash flow. So that's two or three in the bush. So dollar in the hand with the charitable giving up to 30% and the two in the bush with the shifting the dollars that would have gone to the federal the state into your solar business. And then of course, if somebody's about to sell a property, it's about, well, do you want to sell it in your name 
or do you want to sell it to, in the name of an entity that you fully control? And then you can also reinvest in real estate whenever you desire. Love it. <laughs> and not Love mention it. every transaction moving forward there, you have tax efficiency, right? Because it's all about that. The inefficiency in tax is what really is a big drag on people. So if you can put assets inside of an entity, let's call it like, if you look at the deferred model, imagine having a qualified account, but you don't have all the rules. You don't have the minimum withdrawal rules. You don't have the 59 and a half rules. You don't have the 10% rules. You don't have to step up a basis rules because you can carry it to your heirs. But you can consistently invest and reinvest and sell and invest and reinvest inside the structure without a taxable event. The only time you have a taxable event is when you take money out of that structure. And that's just pro rata, right? So it's very efficient. Love it. Well, fantastic conversation. I want to switch us now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. First one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? I have to say my favorite book is the Holy Bible. It is my number one book. And of course, I probably wouldn't have said that five or 10 years ago. But the more I dig in, the more knowledge I see, particularly Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Psalms. It's just so much wisdom in the whole book. But in those three books, it's like I look at this and you listen to people like Tony Robbins and Kiyosaki and all these people. And they say some pretty profound things. But there's so many things that are said that you can trace back and it's actually in the scripture, right? (laughs) Yeah, I had a pastor one time say, every answer to life's questions in the Bible, you just got to dig deep enough to find it. That's right. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have? Morning is really, really important. Keeping a very consistent morning pattern really sets the tone for the day. So my morning pattern is wake up, scripture. I have some back issues. So I do some posture pumping and some certain things to really alleviate that. If I don't, I'm in a bind all day. And then I work out, work out the body, work out the mind. And those three things, plus a nice breakfast sets the tone for the day. And I do that consistently. And I think that really is, again, setting the tone for the day. And at the end of the day, you also need to make sure that you're planning for the next day. Like what are the most important priorities that I need to accomplish tomorrow? Because if you wake up and you get pulled in three directions before you even know, that's a problem. So having that morning consistency, but ultimately every evening, understanding what your top three things to do tomorrow will be. Yeah. You sound like you were looking over my shoulder today in terms of being pulled in different directions. And all of a sudden you, uh, if you don't have your priorities, you kind of forget about it. That's right. Our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? That's a great question. The best advice that I've received is to never look at the short term. Don't step over dollars to pick up pennies. It's like, what is the long-term perspective? It's not about what am I going to get today or maybe even tomorrow? How is this going to shape my life? And what is the outcome going to be in five or 10 or 15 years if I continue to build brick over brick over brick in this foundation? Because if you have that projection in place, And you know what 15 years from now looks like if you continue to lay those bricks, that it's going to be so much better than you just shifting around left and right, trying to pick up this and get this done because you're looking at the short term. That's it. One of the most key lessons that my mom taught me when I was a kid is always prepare for the long term. Always look for the long term. Awesome. Our fourth one is, what are you most proud of in your life? I want to say this in the right way. (laughs) I'll say in a funny way, right? But I don't mean it like this, but I bagged a good one, right? My wife is amazing. (laughs) So I definitely outkicked my coverage. I married up, so to speak, you know, if you ever ever heard that before, but so I'm very proud of having a relationship with my loving wife and the kids that we have, two amazing kids and our relationship together as a family and in our relationship with our King, our Messiah, we're very faith oriented. I think that is just the gem of my life and accomplishment. So it's, it's nice. Thanks for asking. Well, our fifth one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? 
Well, the good news is I think that there's an opportunity that this will happen. So I would have to say the most profound individual in all of time, which would be, I call him Yeshua. Most people called him Yeshua when he was alive, when he was in the flesh, Jesus Christ, right? So sitting down with him ultimately and just asking questions about the universe and the creation of the universe and why is this and why is that? So I think there'll be an opportunity at least at some point for me to do that in the future, but that would be sitting down and eating that bowl of ice cream and talking creation, talking why and all those things. What kind of ice cream do you think Jesus eats? Ooh, question. I would have to say that we can't even describe the flavor. Like there's like, we can't even comprehend it, right? So because we can't comprehend so many of things that he does. So I guess I would have to describe the ice cream as I can't even describe the flavor and the combination of flavors because it would blow our mind. <laughs> okay, I'll accept the answer. I'll accept the answer. Well, Mark, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and connect with you and learn more about the solutions that you offer, where's the best place we could point them? Sure, just tell them to come to my website, Matt, peakprofitsolutions.com. It's plural, peakprofitsolutions.com. On that, I've got opportunities to hop on and look at my schedule and really align your schedule with mine and just pick a time. We can take 15, 20 minutes. I have 30 minute increments just to talk about your situation. You don't have to come prepare with all documents and all your numbers. Just kind of give me some basic insight. And I can tell people within 10, 15 minutes what kind of opportunities are available. And I also have some case studies on there. So if they want to look at a few case studies or kind of dig in a little bit before they or want to talk to me, that's fine too. They can always click on those and I can send them out some things to look at before we schedule a quick talk. Perfect. Well, we're going to link those in the show notes. And then Mark, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Matt. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.